Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. Well, today we are starting a brand new sermon series. Don't sound so excited. (laughs) It's not a brand new sermon series called Game Changers. Uh, Five game-changing verses in the Bible. So it's our desire in this series that you feel compelled to go home and open up the Word of God and read it. Because there's really good stuff in there. And so uh, 2 Timothy tells us that uh, God's Word, every bit of God's Word is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting. All that is very true. But not every single verse, because we added the verses, the verse numbers later, not every single verse came theological punch. So we chose five verses that we thought were simply game-changing verses, meaning that these are verses that pack so much truth, some of it encouraging, some of it challenging, but they're verses that if you take them, memorize them, work them into your mind and in your heart, they will be game changers for your faith. That's kind of what we're hoping for in this series. So, are you ready to dive into week number one? If you're ready, say ready. ready. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> hey, I just got to wake you up. I just got to get everybody into what we're doing today. Um, I want to give you just a quick, I don't know, warning is this too strong of a word, but... I want to give you a quick disclaimer before we begin. Today's message is a challenging one to hear, okay? Today's message is a challenging one to hear. I didn't want to give this one, but I'm not the boss. God's the boss, so here I am giving it to you. So if you have a problem with today's message, go to him, not to me, all right? In the 19th century, there was a daredevil by the name of Charles Blondin, He went by the great Blondin. Creative, I know. I got a picture up here for you. He was known in particular for doing a high wire tightrope act over the Niagara Falls. How many would be totally down for that? Not me. Got some kids raising their hand. Keep an eye on those kids, parents. But he was known for this, and he would do it in many different ways. So sometimes he would do it blindfolded. Sometimes he would do it on stilts. One time, he did it with his manager on his back. And that time, he stopped in the middle to cook an omelet. And when I read that, I thought to myself, I wonder if he told his manager that he was going to do that midway through. What are you doing, man? (laughs) But this is what he did, and he, during one of these acts, actually it was just before he was getting ready to do one of these acts at Niagara Falls, there was a crowd gathering, and it was, his act was going to include a wheelbarrow this time, and there was a man standing near him, and he turned to the man and he said, do you believe that I can get this wheelbarrow across to the other side safely? And the man, without even thinking, he just said, yeah, of course, I've seen your act I've seen you do this, no problem, you can do this. And the great blonde didn't turn and looked him right in the face and said, then get in the wheelbarrow. Faith, and this is a story about faith, is tricky like that sometimes. Sometimes, if we're honest, I think my faith, my confidence is a little stronger in words than it is in follow-through. 
Sometimes it's a little easier for me to say, well, yes, I believe blank. But when the rubber meets the road in my life and it's time to get in the wheelbarrow, I might be a little more hesitant. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we cannot see. Confidence. That's a word that means to, it actually means to get in the wheelbarrow. It means to put all of my weight in or on something or someone. That's what that means. But I think some of us, in fact, all of us at different times in our lives, we stop short of this in our faith in God, even though God calls us to full and authentic faith, confidence in him. He calls us to this. I think sometimes we kind of hesitate. And I think there's a reason for this. This is an asterisk. You recognize this? I see it over there. When you see one of these, you know that there's more to read, right? Get a little document. Sometimes you see right? They're like, hey, 50% off. <laughs> Maybe. Because why? Because there's fine print. There's disclaimers and there's conditions. I think if we're honest... Many of us, when it comes to our faith in God at different times in our lives, we have fine print faith. I think we have fine print faith. We say, oh, hey, God, I trust you. I'm trusting you with all of this stuff in my life, but um, I got this area that I'd prefer that you didn't mess with. That's fine print of my faith. I think that sometimes we do this with relationships. Well, God, I trust you you're the lord of my life from beginning to end but there's a relationship that, that you didn't take away that prefer you didn't mess with right maybe we do this with our safety or with our health i think there's a lot of different things that we tend to put the asterisk on in our lives and we do this because we're trying to protect something in our lives so i have full faith in god but really to a certain extent. But sometimes we face moments of truth in our lives. And the moments of truth come along. And the question is, with my faith in God, am I going to get in the wheelbarrow? Or is my faith going to be more talk than it is walk? That's the question. And the only way that we can go from fine print faith to full authentic faith and trust in God, as we even sang this morning, trust in God even when it's difficult even during those big moments of truth, is we have to accept a simple but difficult truth. And it's today's main idea in your notes, and it's the only point in this sermon. This is seriously a one-point sermon today. You should be impressed with that. <laughs> Pared it down to one thing. There's a lot of things in your notes, but it's one point, and it's this, right at the top. God gets to decide. God gets to to decide. That's a simple truth, but it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to swallow depending at what period you are in your life. I can say that that's good with all of these other things in my life, but there may be some areas that if I'm honest, I don't know if I'm okay with God deciding because I don't know what he's going to decide. And that causes me to have fine print faith. Well, 
Today, we are going to dive into a story. Our game-changing verse of the day is found in the book of Daniel. So you turn to the book of Daniel right now. That's where we're going to find our game-changing verse. We're not going to get to it immediately, though, because we've got to set up the story. I've got a picture uh, as a map for you. What's happening in the book of Daniel is happening during an event called the Exile. And this is when God's chosen people, Israel, stopped choosing him. They started worshiping false gods. And they abandoned him. They were not completely faithful. They thought they were kind of faithful. But there's no such thing as kind of faithful. They had fine print faith. And over a long period of time, it led them astray. And so God, because he's a good, loving, heavenly father, he decided to get their attention. And he disciplined them by kicking them out of the land that he had given them, their home. And he used the Babylonian Empire to do this. And so they came in and they laid siege to Judah. And they kicked him out. Brought him back to Babylon. And when they did, the leadership in Babylon chose, hand chose, the most handsome, most attractive, most intelligent most brilliant, wisest young men, and I'm talking probably late teens here, young men to draft them into the service of the king of Babylon, which is King Nebuchadnezzar. And the best of the best of these men that were chosen, the best of the best, one of them was named Daniel, and he had three friends. And three of his friends were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they were drafted into service of the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a long word, and there's a lot of syllables in it. So for the purpose of this sermon, I'm going to shorten it down to Nebi. Okay? Seriously, I ran this through in my office. If I did this versus not doing this, it was like a five-minute difference in the sermon. Now, I'm, we're going to go through some story here, and I want you guys to really stay engaged with me. So it's crowd participation time. You okay with that? You're going to do a little crowd participation with me today. So there's going to be different times in the sermon during the story where I point at you and I say, say it. Okay? And when you do, you're going to say a three-word phrase. Very simple. It's this. Nebi, be crazy. <laughs> All right? Are you ready? Let's practice. Say it. Yeah, Nebi be crazy. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar, or as we'll call him, Nebi is crazy. This guy's insane. One time in chapter 2, I'm not going to read it through because it's a whole lot of text and we don't have a lot of time, but he has a dream, a bad dream, one that really messes with his head. You ever have one that keeps you up all night long and then it keeps you up for like three more nights? Whatever it was that you dreamed? This is what happened to him. But it, it was even worse for him because God gave him the dream, right? And he didn't know what it meant, but it really was bothering him. So he gathered together all of his nation's smartest, wisest people, everybody that he could. And he gathered them up in the room and he said, I've had a dream and I don't know what it means. I need you to tell me what it means. And they said, okay, well, tell us what the dream was and we'll tell you what it means. And then he said, no, no, no. I want you to tell me what the dream was. And then you tell me what it means. And they said, okay, nobody can do that. And he said, if you don't do that, 
I'm going to chop you up into pieces and burn your house down. Know why? Because say it. He's crazy. This guy's insane. Well, as it turns out, God had the deck stacked in his favor, and he had a young man named Daniel that he gave the opportunity and the ability to do just what the king was asking for, as insane as it was. And so Daniel goes up to his king, and he says, here's what your dream was, king. You dreamt of a statue in four parts, representing four different kingdoms, and one of the kingdoms is yours. And then, not only that, but you dreamt of a rock that came from a mountain that wasn't man-made, and it crushed the statue in all four of the kingdoms. Here's what the dream means. Your kingdom has a countdown clock on it. Because God is going to set up his own kingdom one day, and his is the one that's going to last forever, not yours. Now, King Nebi was so overwhelmingly grateful to Daniel to be able to tell him what this dream meant, that he actually promoted him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to high positions in the Babylonian government. But this stayed with King Nebi. It stayed with him day after day, day after day, day after day, until we get to Daniel 3, chapter, or Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. And we see how he responds. He dreamt of a statue, and it really bothered him. So he decided, I'm going to build a statue of my own. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, King Nebi made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right. Statue bothered me, I'm going to build a statue of my own, make it a pure gold, that whole thing. A couple of things to know about this statue. Number one, the proportions are weird. 60 cubits high, six cubits wide that measures out to okay builders in the room that measures out to about 90 feet high nine feet wide how's that going to work it's totally unstable it's totally unstable don't miss the symbolism here that god is throwing into his word it's a statement about king nebi and his mindset and his personality he is very 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 high reaching and very very unstable Okay, that's the first thing to know about this statue. Here's the second thing to know. It was set up in the plains of Dura on the province of Babylon. What's interesting about this is that if it were a statue that were totally about religion, it probably would have come with a temple, and it would not have been easily accessible. If it was purely about religion, I want you to you know, eject your God and worship this other God. That's not what's happening here. What King Nebi is offer, what King Nebi is after, he's after something that he was, he felt threatened by in the dream. He was after authority and allegiance and loyalty. He wanted to know that in all of his subjects' lives, he was the one that got to decide. That's what he wanted to know, and he wanted to prove it. And so he built this statue right out in the plain for everybody to see, readily accessible. It's very interesting. Let's continue on with the story. Verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. It was probably of one of his gods, probably, but again, he's after full allegiance and loyalty. Verse 3. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials... <sighs> 
It's a lot of that in this book. Assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebi had set up, and they stood before it. Verse 4, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear, those are key words, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebi has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Why? Say it. Nebi be crazy. Verse 7, therefore, again those key words, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, and guitar, and drums, and drum machine, and all kinds of music, all the nations and every peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebi had set up. As soon as they heard the music, as soon as they heard the music. You guys remember, uh, I think they teach this in school, but you remember Pavlov's dog? Okay? This is what's happening here. If you don't remember, Pavlov was doing a study, and he realized that his dogs would immediately begin to salivate at the sight of their food. And he thought, I wonder if I can change that a little bit. And so he started to ring a bell every time it was time to eat. And pretty soon, his dogs started to salivate ring of the bell without even seeing the food. As soon as they heard the bell, bam, automatic response. As soon as they heard the bell, automatic response. This is what's happening. It's called classical conditioning, and this is what King Nebi is after. Because what he wants is an automatic response. You hear the music, bam, you're bowing down and you're showing total allegiance and loyalty to me, not to anyone else. Or to me above everybody else. That's what he's after. Because if he gets to, if he gets to the point where this is classically conditioned in people's heads, they're not going to think about it. They're just going to do it. This is how idolatry works. Okay? Now, idolatry means to, it's, I think sometimes we think it means to worship an idol, like an actual physical thing. And that certainly is included in the definition. But I think we need to widen our definition a little bit to understand what's happening here. Idolatry is to worship anything created. Anything, okay, it's worship anything other than God. And you and I are really good at doing it. We're really good at doing it. And we're so good that we're classically conditioned. The idols that we tend to worship, maybe, maybe relationships, maybe health, maybe money, maybe sex, maybe power, whatever it is, all of those things, we tend to worship them and it's automatic and we don't even think about it. And it's so automatic that many of us don't even know that we're doing this, but we are. Your heart, this is the first thing in your notes, your heart is an idol factory. Your heart is an idol factory. It produces idols like Apple produces iPhones. Just straight up. All the time. Why? Because only good things make good idols. Only good things make good idols in the world. God filled the world full of really good things. Filled the world full of good things. The problem is that we take good things and we make them ultimate things. And there's only one ultimate thing in the world. And that's God himself. 
And so we take those things and we put them in that position. And what we do is we put an asterisk on it. We put an asterisk on the things that we take that are good and we want to make them ultimate things because we're convinced that we can't lose them. And if we were to lose them, then my life would be over. If I lost this relationship, I don't know how I could go on living. If I lost this money out of my bank account, I would have no peace. This is what we put it on the end. God says, no, I want to decide over everything in your life. And you say, you can decide over like 98% of my life. But this part right here, I, I have to, God, you don't understand. I can't lose this. We take good things and we make them ultimate things. When we lose good things, we experience sorrow. When we lose ultimate things, we experience hopelessness. This is how you know if you've got some idolatry going on in your heart. Because you are either fearing that you will feel hopeless or you do feel hopeless because there's something that you lost that to you was an ultimate thing. I want to read a small section out of a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. This is a book all about idolatry, and he begins it by telling a very sober but true story. He says, In 2008, after the global economic crisis began, There followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. In other words, people who had it all. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in a Ponzi scheme, killed himself in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $500 a night suite in London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, who had just bought him out, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said, this whole thing broke his spirit. This is what we do. When we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing, thing, something we can't lose, I begin to bow down to that idol. And here's the thing about an idol. When you have an idol, you don't actually have it. It has you. It has you. You are completely enslaved to it. It's an automatic response. And when we take something that was meant to be in God's position and we put something else there, it's always disaster. And here's why. Fine print faith is driven by fear. Fine print faith is driven by fear. I only put an asterisk on the things in my life that I'm terrified to go without, that I'm terrified to lose. Maybe it's my health. Maybe it's my safety. But there's going to come a time where there's a moment of truth. And God's going to say, I need you to get in the wheelbarrow. I need you to trust me completely with this. And there are times where we will shrink back because we've done this. I'm sorry. But this thing over here, it's not just good to me, it's ultimate to me. And we do it without even thinking. All right? We might not actually physically bow the knee to Aphrodite, but we have many, many people in this church and in this world who punish themselves to look a certain way because beauty is their ultimate thing. 
We might not actually sacrifice our children to Artemis, but when career and fulfillment and financial security are on the line, many times it's our kids that pay the price because we sacrifice our time with them in order to achieve more. You see how we do this? We do this over and over again. Well, what's the way out? We got to continue with the story to get there. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Everybody's bowing down. Well, not everybody. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebi, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship thrown into a blazing furnace. Again, why? Say it. Nebi be crazy. And you're about to see it. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebi summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? He's saying, There's no way. There's no way. I know these guys. He actually likes these guys. He's promoted them to a high position. There's no way that this is true. Verse 15. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. So he's going to give them an opportunity here. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. We won't have a problem. I'll let this go. You go on with your day. Very simple. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. This looks like it will cost them nothing. You're in front of the king, just do, do think, just, just bow for a second. Just bow and then go on with your day. Then you're fine. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand is something that we need to understand if we are going to get out of the cycle of worshiping idols in our lives and get back into worshiping God. They understood that they needed to take worship as seriously as God takes worship. And God takes worship very seriously. Right? God takes his glory very seriously. He is not willing to share his glory with anyone or anything because anyone and everything is created and he's the creator and that turns nature inside out. It turns creation inside out. That's not what he wants. Look at what he says here in Exodus 20, verse 4. I got it up on the screens for you. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have this memorized. They know this. They know what God said. They've got it in their heads. But now the moment of truth has arrived. Are they going to be revealed to have full, authentic faith or fine print faith? Time to get in the wheelbarrow. Are they going to do it? Are they going to say with their lives and with their choice, we trust God completely? Or when it comes to their safety, when it comes to their own well-being, when it comes to their bodies, are they going to say, really, we trust ourselves more than we trust God? Well, they knew something important. 
God is jealous for your worship. He's jealous for it. And this sometimes we think means something bad, but it, it doesn't. To be jealous for something on the whole means that you want something back that rightfully belongs to you. Okay? You want something back that to you. If you are envious, you want something that never belonged to you in the first place. You get that? And God, when God does jealousy, he does it perfectly, and he's jealous for your worship. But he's not just jealous for your worship. He's jealous for your allegiance, for your total loyalty. Things that we should give to God and God alone and not to any created thing or system. That's what he is after. And he's after it because our worship is meaningless without our allegiance. Then we're just standing here at Shelby Road Baptist Church at 9.30 in the morning and we're singing songs and we don't even mean what we sing. God in heaven, I give you all the praise. You are almighty, I trust you. We sing things like, I surrender all. Right? Do we mean it? Sometimes we wish we meant it more than we did. That's a good place to be. That's asking God to work on you. But sometimes, if we're really honest, I surrender some or most. I surrender most. Well, that's not allegiance. God wants it all. He has to have it all because he's God. God is jealous because our worship rightfully belongs to him. That's how the world was made. That's how creation's made. If we give our worship or our allegiance to anyone or anything else, then we start to work against the way that he designed the world to work. So what's at stake here is are they going to take his worship seriously and as seriously as he takes it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, let's find out. In verse 16, we see their response to King Nebi. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebi, they probably didn't say Nebi, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love this. We don't answer to you. That's strong. It's about to get stronger. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able, it's an important word, able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. All right? I'm pointing this out in your notes Number seven, we're doing it in two parts, but here's the first part. Authentic faith acknowledges God's power. It acknowledges God's power. God is omnipotent, okay? Omni, all, potentia, powerful. That's, that's what it means. He can do everything, and he is not limited. And it's a very good thing for you and me that God is omnipotent, right? That he's totally unlimited. But it also presents a bit of a problem for us. Because if he can do everything and is totally unlimited, there's going to be some things that he's going to do that I'm not going to want him to do. And there's going to be some things that I wish he would do that he might not do. And that presents a faith problem for us. And that's part of where the rubber meets the road with our faith. Am I going to let him be God in my life? Well, this right here, the gauntlet's been thrown down for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we've now reached our game-changing verse for the day, okay? This is Daniel 3, verse 18, their response. He is able to do it, 
But then they say, but even if he does not. I don't have any scientific stats on this, but those might be universally the six most frightening words in the Bible. They are for me. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Listen to what they're saying here. They're saying, we are sta- they're standing in front of the flames. King Nebi has ordered them to get turned up as high as they go. They're feeling the heat come from the roaring fire, and they're standing in front of not only the heat from the fire, but the heat from the king. And he's asking them, he's saying, all you got to do is one small motion, that's it, give me your allegiance, it's all good. But they know that God takes worship seriously, and they say, listen, God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not. I find that interesting, and I find that inspiring, because they could have said, they could have gone the name it, claim it route here. They could have said, hey, King Nebi, watch this. You're going to throw us in there? That's good. I'm calling down from heaven in the name of Jesus right now a fire suit. Nothing's going to happen to us. You're going to watch that happen. They could have done that, but they didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Well, it's because of the second part of number seven in your notes. Authentic faith acknowledges God's power and surrenders to God's will. He acknowledges the power. He's able to do it, but surrenders to his will. Why? Because of our main point. God gets to decide. He gets to decide. They understood this. They left it completely up to him. How many of us are doing that in our lives, in the areas that mean the most to us, in the areas where we've got an asterisk hanging on our faith? How many of us are saying this because no doubt you have already encountered or will encounter a time in your life where you are begging God to do something. You are begging him to come through for you in some way, shape, or form. You are asking him to heal somebody that you love. You are asking him to heal you. You are asking him to come through and getting you a job because you haven't had a job for a year and a half and you've got to provide for your family. And you are begging him on your knees saying, Lord, I need you to come through for me on this thing. But there's a step that if we take it, it is game-changing faith to say, I really want you to do this thing. But even if you don't, I worship you and no one else and nothing else. That is faith. That's getting in the wheelbarrow. That saying, I'm with you no matter what you do, no matter what you decide. Because here's the thing, God has my best interests at heart, that's true. But sometimes his best interests override my own. Because God's in it for his glory. God is for God. And sometimes, though it's hard to accept, I told you this was a hard message to hear. Sometimes, though it's hard to accept, God may decide that for his glory, it's better for me to go into the furnace than to be saved from it. That might happen. I'm not going to lie to you. This is the reality of walking with God. So they put their complete trust in him. Authentic faith doesn't guarantee what God will do, but it holds to what God says. 
They didn't know if God would save them from the furnace, but they knew what God said. They said, they knew that God said, don't bow down. That's what he said. And so they're going to hold to what he said. And this is what happens. They get thrown in the furnace. They get thrown in the furnace. And an interesting thing happens inside of the furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebi leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? They're like, oh yeah, well, we threw three. There's four in there. Look, I see four men walking, I love that, walking around. They're just in the fire chilling, walking around, checking stuff out, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebi then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps and prefects and all the other people, they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Listen to this. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Pretty powerful thing when the person that was opposing you gives your testimony after the event. Right? There's something I need us to understand here as we kind of come in for a landing on this. Don't, yes, they were saved from being burned in the furnace, but when were they saved? Were they saved before they got thrown in or after they got thrown in? They were saved after they got thrown in. That's what, if I were them, like later on chatting this over with the Lord, I might be like, okay, man, did you have to do it after? If you were going to do it anyway, couldn't you have just saved us before the thing? That moment of terror as I'm falling into the fire, <laughs> you could have spared me from that, but he didn't. And I think it's because every story, don't miss this, if you, reading your Bible at home, everything in the Bible is about God. It's primarily about God, and this says something about who God is. And this is what it says. God might expose you to it, but he's going to walk you through it. God might expose you to it, whatever it is that I'm fearing, but he's going to walk me through it every time. You serve a God who meets you in the furnace. If you've got to go there, listen, God will go anywhere that he calls you to go. He will go anywhere that he calls you to go. He is not asking you to do something he's not willing to do or has done already in the past himself. He's going to meet you in the furnace, is what he does. And that's important for us to know, because I don't know about you, but if I've got to walk through a furnace, I want to have a God with me. I want to have the Lord with me. I want to have Jesus with me. If I am willing to take this verse, but even if he does not, just those words, that right there, that is idol-busting, asterisk, fine-print-erasing faith. It changes the game. Truthfully, it does. If we're going to do this in the moment of truth, 
If I'm praying for something, I'm desperately hoping God takes one way, but I'm surrendering to the idea that he gets to decide if we're going to do this. I've got to ask myself one question on a regular basis because I need the reminder. And the question is, how do I know God can be trusted? We said this in the worship. We said God can be trusted. But we got to have the reason locked down. How do I know? How do I know that he can be trusted with the outcome of whatever it is? How do I know he can decide? Well, it's because of this. We know more. We know more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did because we know Jesus. And God didn't spare Jesus from the furnace. Jesus faced his own furnace and God didn't spare him from that. And he did that because he knew something. We go through this entire life scared to death of some things we might lose. But God knows that truly there's only one thing I can't afford to lose. One thing and one thing only. And that's Jesus. So the last thing in your notes is something very important here. I'm not going to forget it this week. It's very important. If I have Jesus and nothing else, I have everything. That's a scary sentence to write, but it is 100% true. If I have Jesus and nothing else, I have everything that I need. I think that many times our faith stops short of where God is calling us to because of our fear of what the result will be. But God gets to decide. And if God gets to decide, he can be trusted. And I know he can be trusted because I saw Jesus on the cross. I have that image in front of me, and I know that, I know that whatever happens here, it's not because he doesn't care because he's on the cross for me. And whatever happens here, it's not because he can't do anything because he accomplished on the cross the biggest thing that anybody could ever accomplish in setting us free from sin and death. He gets to decide. But in Jesus, I have everything that I need. Everything that I need. Things feel unlosable. They do. But trust me when I tell you, the one and only thing you truly can never afford to lose, you never will lose. Because he went to the cross for you to ensure that you would never lose him. That's the faith that we are called to. That's the faith that I'm going to challenge you to pray for. Okay? So, really, maybe on the back of your notes or just as you leave today when you get home, I just want you to try writing out that phrase, but even if he does not, but even if he does not, Daniel 3.18, but, but even if he does not, whatever it is that you are desperately praying for the most right now, I challenge you to that kind of level of faith. And I believe you will experience freedom. You will experience joy and trust in God that goes beyond anything that we've currently been walking through. Would you stand with me? I don't need to punctuate this anymore. I'm just going to read a short section from Matthew chapter 26 and close in prayer. Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Because God gets to decide. Heavenly Father, give us the kind of faith that can say that. And even if we don't fully mean it, Lord, in your mercy, help us mean it as we walk through life, as you destroy the idols in our heart, and help us to have a faith that is truly game-changing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.